Welcome, friends. On this podcast, we talk about a lot of things, mostly prayer, but also spiritual warfare, parenting adult kids, and what it's like to be a woman of God living in in an increasingly post-Christian world. If you've listened to me for long, you know that I also approach the subject of deconstruction because, well, because I found myself there. When I was pregnant with my first child, I talked a lot to my mother. Mostly, I'd call and whine about being sick. She'd assure me that it would all be worth it in the end. I had my doubts. (laughs) But once the morning sickness subsided, I shared my concerns that all would be well with my baby. I don't know if other mothers do that, but I had a hard time shutting the doors to the haunting thoughts of all the possible things that could maybe go wrong with my child. I kind of worried that God might consider me strong enough to live a really great testimony on a really terrible platform. My mom found a story in a magazine that gave me comfort. It was about a person who thought they were going to London, but ended up in Amsterdam instead. It was all about how disappointed they were that they didn't get to where they thought they were going, but how once they stopped focusing on what they didn't get to have, and instead started looking for what was interesting and even good about what they did have, they grew to be quite fond of where they landed. It was a good story. Well, I don't know about you, but life has certainly taken me places I didn't intend to go. And being in close relationship with people who are deconstructing their faith is one of those places. I thought I was going to London, and I feel like I ended up in Iran instead. Seriously, but not really. Well. Maybe. Not really. (laughs) I better move on. This episode is one of several I'm going to record between now and November to supplement the material I plan to present in a conference at Lifeways Forum happening November 9 and 10 at First Baptist Church, Hendersonville, Tennessee. You can check today's show notes for a link to that conference. I would love to see you there. In this episode, I'm taking a deep, and I mean deep, dive into what deconstruction is. And then I'm giving you three things you can do if you're like me and you're loving someone who's deconstructing your faith. In other words, if you've landed on that tarmac and you need a tourist guide to Iran, this is what you'll get in this episode. What is deconstruction of faith and how ought we respond to it? In November, I'm going to be leading a conference at Lifeways Forum that comes to Nashville every year in November. You can go to their website and see how you can sign up for this. It's a great leadership conference for women who serve in the church and in, I would imagine, any areas of ministry. Anyway, the conference that they've invited me to come and lead, that I've titled Losing Faith, Creating a Ministry Response to Deconstruction. In preparation for that conference, I've decided to take some of my episodes of the Leanne McCoy podcast and um, expound on what I'll be teaching there. I always use this podcast as a place to say everything I'd like to say if I had the time to say it on the platforms that I'm given. You know that already if you've followed the podcast for long. I get one opportunity to stand up on the platform on a Sunday morning, and then I have like, you know, four other messages attached to that one. (laughs) It's just the way God made me. We're going to say it's not like that. But anyway, if you followed my podcast for long, you know that I have personal connection to the cultural wave of deconstruction. And because of my personal connection, I admit 
that I've not approached the subject objectively. My engagement with deconstruction has been more like you might approach a hurricane from its worst parts, being whipped by the wind and beaten by the rain, desperately wishing you could find the eye of the storm so that you can travel with it in a calm and collected space. Years ago, I taught a retreat, an entire retreat, on what it looks like to travel life in the eye of the storm. The only problem with that good teaching back then was that I'd not yet been in the kind of storms that I've been in lately. The retreat was based on this verse in Isaiah, Isaiah 26, 3. You will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. My goal in this episode is that you get a little closer to the eye of the deconstruction storm if you find yourself in it. Please, as always, share this podcast with anyone you know who might benefit from it. Let's begin by talking about what deconstruction is. I found several definitions and one deep dive into the origins of the concept of deconstruction that I want to share with you today. What is deconstruction? It's the process of taking apart and examining an idea, tradition, practice, or belief to determine its truthfulness, usefulness, and impact. This is what gravityleadership.com says about deconstruction. Deconstruction is the heading most recently applied to the process of questioning, doubting, and ultimately, perhaps, rejecting aspects of the Christian faith. I want to read to you a rather lengthy explanation of the origins of deconstruction that I found on the Desiring God website. It was an article titled, What Does Deconstruction Even Mean? This article was written by John Bloom, and of course, I will um, put the link to it in the show notes. Now I'm reading. In the 1960s, a French philosopher named Jacques Derrida, he lived from 1930 to 2004, began to advocate for a postmodern philosophy of language and its relationship to our conceptions of meaning that he called deconstruction. Basically, this involved the premise that humans, through biological evolution, determined the meaning of things not from divine revelation nor by discovery of truth, but rather from how individuals perceive truth at a certain moment in time. That moment being affected by his cultural, political, religious, environmental, and experiential influences. Therefore, philosophers and theologians who consult ancient writings cannot decipher absolute truth of meaning because they're reading without understanding the construct of the writer's culture. The more distant the reader is from the author, the less he'll understand without participating in a process of deconstruction. Sophisticated methods of textual criticism must be employed to deconstruct the author's words in order to decipher the conceptual constructs that shaped the author's understanding of truth and meaning. So, according to John Bloom's explanation of Derrida, Deconstruction is a method of literary criticism that takes apart and analyzes an author's use of language in effort to discern his construct of meaning. Now, hang in there with me. I know this is, we dove into the deep end in this episode. The part that's important to understand 
what lies hidden in the roots of this word as related to our Christian faith today is this. For Derrida, there is no meaning outside the text of a philosopher's written work. No absolute truth that the writer is shedding light on for the reader. There's only the writer's construct of meaning of truth represented in the text that he wrote. Which means that there's no absolute truth inside the philosopher's text either. Just a reflection of how the author interpreted what the world means which according to Derrida is what meaning is for all of us, a human psychological construct shaped by multiple influences. So why have Christians adopted the term deconstruction from a philosophy based on principles of philosophical naturalism? I think we can make a connection from something theologian Kevin Van Hooser has written about Derrida. The motive behind Derrida's strategy of undoing, which the word is deconstruction, stems from his alarm over illegitimate appeals to authority and exercises of power. The belief that one has reached the single correct meaning or God or truth provides a wonderful excuse for damning those with whom one disagrees as either fools or heretics. Neither priests who supposedly speak for God nor philosophers who supposedly speak for reason should be trusted. This logocentric claim to speak from a privileged perspective, reason, the word of God, is a bluff that must be called or better deconstructed. Over the decades since Derrida introduced his philosophy of deconstruction, the term has worked its way into the common vernacular where it now has come to generally mean a critical dismantling of tradition and traditional modes of thought. In other words, deconstruction has become a kind of shorthand term that in addition to critically questioning traditional ways of thinking also implies a refusal to recognize as authorities those who see themselves or are perceived to see themselves as ones who, quote, claim to speak from a privileged perspective, unquote, about what truth is. In the Christian world, this translates to critically questioning traditional modes of Christian belief and often refusing to recognize as authorities those perceived as occupying privileged Christian institutional positions who, quote, supposedly speak for God. Unquote. Deconstruction is a critical dismantling of a person's understanding of what it means to be an evangelical Christian, and in some cases, a refusal to recognize as authorities those perceived as occupying privileged evangelical institutional positions who, again, supposedly speak for God. I'm repeating that for emphasis. So let's stop here and consider the ramifications of this definition of deconstruction. If someone you love is deconstructing their faith, especially if that someone is someone you led as a parent, a spiritual leader, or a mentor, they are not only in a process of rejecting the beliefs that you used to share in common, but they're also in a process of rejecting you because you taught them those things. You claimed that they were true, and you continue to hold fast to those beliefs now. 
As crazy as it seems, the very nature of their deconstruction requires them to oppose you. While the process of deconstruction might be difficult for the person engaged in it, it's also confusing and painful for you because it's turning your relationship with that person upside down and inside out. They might be angry with you because you joined the evangelical political support of Trump in the last election, which I'm not even going to get to in this podcast, but I might in another one. They may have a point there. Their anger might be fueled by the way church people mistreated them or the way church people might have mistreated you in the past. And your refusal to join them and their disdain for the entire structure of religion because of that ungodly behavior invalidates their pain. You might find yourself being lumped in the category of those in Christianity's sordid past who abused their position in the church and oppressed people mercilessly. With so much information online, your deconstructing loved one has spent hours searching, reading, digging in their quest to satiate their doubts and bring healing to the gaping wounds created by their disappointments. They know far more than you do about the church's history. And while you're trying desperately to shake the cobwebs off of that elective you took in college on church history, their sword is drawn and they're slicing your ignorance with legitimate historical facts. And to their knowledge, the emotional upheaval that's churning underneath gets added to that knowledge. And my friends, you don't have a chance. How do you respond to that? Too often I limp away defeated, knowing that there's knowing that there's more good that the church has done through the ages but not, not supplied with the facts at my fingertips to get a, give a scholarly response to their accusations. But there are a growing number of resources being developed for us. And one is a book I'm about to order titled Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. It's written by John Dixon. Of course, I'll link it in the show notes. This is what Dixon said in response to Christianity Today's question in an interview with them. The question was, how do you respond to skeptics who list events like the Inquisition or the Crusades as reasons to reject Christianity? And this was John's response. Rejecting Christianity based on the terrible performance of some Christians is like dismissing Bach after hearing my feeble attempts to play his cello suites. We all know to distinguish between the composition and the performance. And the same applies to church history. The original message of Christ resounded through the centuries like a beautiful melody, even as many Christians failed to play in tune. That, my friends, is a great response. Here's the deal. If we didn't love the people deconstructing their faith, we wouldn't struggle with them, right? So remember that if this is right, then this is also right. If they didn't love the Lord, they wouldn't struggle so with their deconstruction, right? But we cannot engage with their God journey. That's a journey they have to take with him. Our role in that is to pray for them 
and humbly bow out. We can, however, take responsibility for the way we respond to them as it pertains to their relationship with us. So let me see if I can find some good advice for us. I'm about to share with you three, I'm checking, two don'ts and one remember, okay? <laughs> three things, two don'ts and one remember. Number one, don't draw conclusions based on conversations you've had with them. First, I think it's important to realize that although their deconstruction feels like demolition to you, you have no idea what's really going on in their minds and hearts, and therefore you cannot come to conclusions with any sense of integrity. There's no need to bemoan anything you did or didn't do that might have led them to this place because, listen to me, it isn't about you. It's about them. There's also no need to assume that you know where their journey is taking them. You can't possibly know because you're not on their path. Remember Proverbs 3, 5, and 6? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will direct your path. The part I want you to say out loud with me is this. Lean not on your own understanding. Are you ready? Let's say it. Lean not on your own understanding. My friends, only God knows where they're headed. So don't go there. Yesterday, my granddaughter River was completing her summer reading book report. She had to answer five questions related to her book, and I wrote the questions on the paper, and she wrote the answers. When she gave me the paper to check her work, I pointed out that she didn't put periods at the end of her sentences. Of course, River went back and she added her periods. Our natural reaction to the things that hurt us is to desperately look for the period at the end of the sentence. We want to know that it's enough, that it's done, that there's purpose in it, and God has taken care of it. But in relationship to a loved one who's deconstructing their faith, it's not necessarily done yet. And we don't get to choose when it might stop. And we can't make it end by reasoning our way out of it. If you love someone deconstructing their faith, you're going to have to be okay with a seriously awful run-on sentence that lacks punctuation. <laughs> in other words, you're going to have to live in a space that's unpredictable, volatile, hurtful, and confusing. But you get to bring all of that to Jesus in a quiet time because you still have the connection with him that ushers you right into the eye of the storm. Remember, he will keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in him. The secret, my friends, to the perfect peace is a steadfast mind that's created by trusting in him. When you bring God your angst, when you bring that angst to your prayer closet, thank him for being there to receive it. Your loved one might not have that sweet space with him right now. Can you imagine how that must feel? 
Let God be enough for you, so much so that you don't have to rush this thing to a premature end that satisfies you and leaves your loved one unsettled. That's what I mean when I say don't draw conclusions based on conversations you've had with them. Number two, don't take anything they say personally. Whoo, they might say things to you in such a way that leaves absolutely no room for thinking that they had anything other than wounding you in mind when they said it. But when they walk away from that conversation, they most likely feel just as bad as you do, only they have the added load of grief over how much they've hurt you. If you're like me, in the heat of the moment, you've said things out of frustration and anger that you wish you could take back as well. And again, remember that they don't have the shadow of his wings to rush into. While you're covered with his feathers and nestled in a safe place where you get to sort out your pain, they're out there in a scary desert without any shelter, feeling like they're drowning in their pain. I actually think they are being kept safe in the shadow of his wings, but they don't know it. And if they don't know it, they don't get the benefit of his protection and grace and mercy and redemption and all of the beautiful things that we get to have when we run to him. You do. You're not deconstructing your faith. So you still have a strong tower, a refuge and strength and ever present help in times of trouble. When I was going through chemo treatment in 2012, I memorized Psalm 62, has 12 verses, and I had 12 treatments. So I tried to memorize a verse each treatment. <laughs> I had two weeks for each treatment. So it gave me two weeks for each verse. I am at rest in God alone. My salvation comes from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my stronghold. I will never be shaken, is how Psalm 62 begins. Go read it. And as you read it, realize that the person who's hurting you is hurting and they aren't at rest in God alone. They aren't experiencing the benefit of their salvation that comes from him. They're without him being their rock and their salvation, their stronghold, because deconstruction feels an awful lot like a severe shaking that goes on and on forever and doesn't stop. Don't clutter up the process or prolong the journey your loved one's taking by wedging yourself in the mix. Give your offense to Jesus and let him so take it so completely that you refuse to show up with them with even a hint of residual stink left over from the previous conversations you've had. You know what? As I've prepared to share this with you, I'm beginning to think that doing this might be one of the most powerful things you can do to help them. Realizing that this is about them and not you is paramount to their journey. You have a great life to live, one that isn't overshadowed by a serious spiritual conflict. Rejoice in that and carry on. By doing so, you free them up to deal with themselves without having to deal with you and them. Without having to deal with this and that. Without having to deal with everything they're struggling with to make sense of. Well, of course, Leanne, that sounds really good. But how am I supposed to release them when my heart insists on being connected? I'm glad you asked. 
because that leads us to the third and final piece of advice I have for us today. Number three, remember who you are in Christ and what he's promised to do for you. But don't tell that to your loved one. They don't want to hear it and it'll get twisted and distorted and return to you as fiery darts. I know this the hard way. Here's the honest truth about how I feel about deconstruction and its intrusion on my life. I feel like David when he went up against Goliath. I see the giant of deconstruction heckling me and I get my guts up. I pull out my slingshot, load it with a stone, rush to the battle line, and whoo, how I declare, the victory belongs to the Lord. I get all excited because everyone's watching to see what's going to happen. I hurl my little stone at the giant and miss. To my dismay, he's still standing. I gave him all I got, and he won't go away. What's more, he's laughing at me. Not just a little, but a lot. And adding insult to injury, he literally rolls on his back and belly laughs. I look back at the people I wanted to encourage by taking my giant down. My people. The ones who believe like I believe and love me along the way. They just shake their heads with compassion for me, but disappointment in me and circle back up around their campfires to sing Kumbaya while the giant continues to roar. But Goliath doesn't get to kill me. He's held at bay by some kind of invisible wall that I can't see. And his army doesn't get to cross the battle line. They stay mysteriously on their side of the battlefield, simply heckling with words that wound but they never get to charge across that line and take me down. I went back to the riverbed all alone and I weep. I cry because I failed. I cry because I feel so alone. I cry because I'm supposed to be able to take this giant down and I can't. And then I just sit there and wonder how I got here in the first place. But if I sit there long enough, Jesus comes along and sits beside me. He gathers me in his arms and he shushes my tears. He rocks me and he hums. He assures me that he's a promise keeper, that all his promises are yes and amen. And that if I'll just hang in there and trust him more, we'll get to the other side. Jesus reminds me that we're in this thing together, he and me. He knows what it feels like to be rejected, blamed, and dismissed. And he fills me with love that refuses to dismiss them. Love that listens to what they're saying to me. That will shed light on my own blind spots. Love that might get me smacked about a bit more before it's all said and done. Love that opens my own blind eyes to the religiosity 
that taints my faith. And he gives me grace for myself because I need it bad. Deconstructions. Deconstruction, my friends, is a personal journey of faith that splashed out on us. Those people we love are smart. They are people who insist on living in alignment with their hearts, their minds, and their souls. They're searching for peace. And to find it, they're doing the hard work of peeling away layers of traditions and, and because I said so's, that are deeply rooted in their selves. They are brave. They have dared to question the unquestionable and they're sailing on waters that we'd never in a million years dare to sail. With enough faith in Jesus and the promises he's given us, we can actually admire them if we can survive them. <laughs> I found encouragement in learning more about deconstruction. I've found sanity in the Bible I've found endurance in prayer, and I've found camaraderie in you. We're in this together, my friends. Let's do what our campers do at church camp when they're randomly plopped into color teams that first day of camp. Without any choice of their own, they're suddenly lumped with a group of people who are shouting with fervor that actually resonates deep within, yellow is supreme. And all week long, they holler till they're hoarse, cheering for their team. Nobody takes the time to ask, what on earth are we doing? And why is it purple or blue or green supreme? We're the people who love the people who ask the hard questions. Questions like why and why not? Seriously, would we have it any other way? We are the people who love the people who are deconstructing their faith. Let's band together and meet each other in that river bed of humiliating defeat. Let's rally and refuse to be afraid. Let's regroup and march off to the line of fire. Let's sling our little stones and do it again and again and again. Let's trust God together and demonstrate what it looks like to cling tenaciously to what others might consider our foolish faith. Let's love our people well and be loved by the God who went to extreme measures to demonstrate his own love for us. Thank you, as always, for listening to today's podcast. Let me know what you're experiencing in your journey of loving people deconstructing their faith by commenting on my Facebook and Instagram sites. Also, share this podcast with people you know who need it. And take a minute to subscribe if you haven't already and give us a five-star rating. That little thing will boost our algorithms and get these messages to more and more people who need to hear them. This is episode 100. What a milestone. We've been downloaded over 20,000 times and are listened to in 35 different countries. I don't know about what you think about that, but I think that's pretty cool. Thank you, Lord, for these great platforms handpicked by you to let our lives be lived for the glory of your name. We'd have it no other way.